There is a lot of talk in the church today about whether there should be, or even can be, women deacons. Now, one of the texts that proponents of this view use is exactly what we're going to look at today in St. Paul's letter to the Romans. But does it mean what they think it means? This is Kale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. And if that doesn't whet your appetite for what's to come, I don't know what will. We will get to that. But first, I just want to clean up a couple of loose threads from our last episode. We were looking at Romans chapter 15, and I'm not going to read that chapter again. You can, just in the interest of time, you can look that up on your own. But St. Paul was talking about his travel plans. As he ends off his letters, he concludes it. And you might think, well, what what is what message is there for us in his itinerary? I mean, really, and this this is what we call the occasional nature of the New Testament. Uh, St. Paul doesn't realize necessarily that he's writing sacred scripture. He's honestly just telling the Romans when he's going to show up on his way to Spain. That's his ultimate destination. But it is part of sacred scripture. We know that the Holy Spirit superintended this is, of course, the primary author of Scripture, the human authors being the instrumental authors. So there is a message for us here. And I don't think it's so much in what Paul was doing in terms of the play-by-play, what he's going to be doing over the next few weeks, months, and even years, but why he's doing it. And this is something that we can really uh, apply to our own lives today. First of all, just to summarize really quickly, he's taking this collection, mainly from Gentile converts that he's made across the empire, and he's bringing this collection to the church in Jerusalem. And it's really going to help these believers there who are in a really, really tough spot. They're in a hard situation. And it's going to show also the unity of the church, Jew and Gentile together. Paul is going to drop it off personally. It's going to make a big impression. Then he's going to go to Rome and hang out with the Romans and just kind of take a bit of a holy sabbatical, uh, an extended retreat, if you will, for a while, meet them, minister them personally, they will minister to him, and then he hopes to head out to uncharted mission territory, and that is Spain, which was considered really the ends of the earth at that point in the Roman Empire. And you got to admire Paul for his zeal in wanting to preach the gospel where it had never been preached before, to boldly go where no man has gone before. I think he would have loved Star Trek if he had lived to see it. But having said that, that's kind of what's in play here. And we also talked about last time the the fact that Paul views himself as a priest. He talks about his priestly service for the gospel of God, the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel. So the Gentiles might become an acceptable offering to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So I do think Paul saw himself as a new covenant priest. And that does, in fact, uh, fly in the face of those who would say that there is no New Testament priesthood, and the Catholic priesthood is a later invention. It wasn't uh, original to the church, and that's not the case. That's not the case at all. And this idea of priest, temple, sacrifice, obviously very familiar to the first century world, especially his Jewish converts in Rome. They would have known about the temple in Jerusalem. Many of them would have made religious pilgrimages there probably throughout their life. They know what he's talking about, and the temple is still standing. Don't forget when Paul is writing, being destroyed, of course, by the Romans in 70 AD. But don't forget there are many Gentiles as well, non-Jewish believers in the church at Rome, and they were influenced by 
yeah, the Roman pantheon of quote unquote gods and the libations that would be poured out to them. And, and yeah, there, there was a bit of a cultic worship for that too. But there were a lot of Greco-Roman writers who really tried to get away from this aspect of sacrifice. And they, and they wanted to make religion really all about, number one, the search for truth just on a purely intellectual plane, and also morality, ethical living, moral living. So truth and morality. And they wanted to kind of get away from this idea of sacrifice. And sometimes even Jewish writers like Philo of Alexandria kind of tried to do the same thing, to try to appeal to, to a broad audience. And, and sometimes he would take parts of the Old Testament and try to kind of spiritualize them a little bit, trying to allegorize them a little bit. Nah, you know, it's not really about animal sacrifice as much as it is about offering yourself as a sacrifice, making an interior sacrifice to God, that, that kind of thing. And, th and there's certainly something to that. And ironically, after the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, all Jewish rabbis and teachers pretty much had to spiritualize the old covenant in that sense, because nobody could actually practice the sacrifices that were enjoined upon them anymore. There was no temple to make these sacrifices in. So they had kind of had to make it all about spiritual sacrifices. Now, what's interesting is that as the Catholic Church continues on throughout history, the church was able to do both. The church was able to continue on with an actual sacrifice, the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, an unbloody sacrifice, of course, in the Eucharist, but also this idea of pursuing intellectual truth, pursuing moral living like the Greek philosophers did. We're into that as well. And this is really what, what, what faith is all about. Faith is, is, it's trust, yes, but it's also what we believe. And there's an intellectual basis for what we believe in faith. There's also morality. And we have to believe, of course, everything that the Catholic Church teaches about two things. Faith, what to believe, and morals, how to live. But there is also this element of sacrifice in the Mass. Now, Earlier in the book, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So really, he's saying we have to offer our whole selves to God as a sacrifice, for sure. Our bodies are walking around life, as it were, as one writer says, and also our minds. We have to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. How are we transformed? By, by learning, studying, understanding the faith, and living by it. So it's not just belief, it's behavior, it's practice as well. So that is part of our spiritual sacrifice here that St. Paul talks about. But there is also the Mass. There's still a Eucharistic sacrifice. The one perfect sacrifice of Christ. And Christ is not sacrificed over and over again, as many non-Catholics say. It's kind of a caricature of Catholic belief. No. There is only one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Only one bloody sacrifice. And we become present to it, to that one sacrifice, through what I like to call mystical time travel. The bonds of time and space are broken, and we are there. We are made present mystically, spiritually, to it, that one perfect sacrifice. And Christ does come to us miraculously 
and his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the sacrament of the Eucharist. So this is all part of it for sure. And this is exactly what God had intended all along. And this idea of, too, the, the Gentiles, the, the offering of the Gentiles sanctified by the Holy Spirit, as uh, Doug Moo says in his commentary on Romans, this probably alludes to an Old Testament prophecy that God was eventually going to sanctify his name among the Gentiles in the final days. You can look at Ezekiel chapter 36. And don't forget, Ezekiel really talks about how the reason why Israel is in exile among the nations is because God's name, they, they've caused God's name to be profaned among the nations by, by not being faithful. Now, intriguingly, in Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to give my people a new heart, a new spirit. And this happens to us when we're baptized, by the way. And Paul's really saying here that God has reversed. His name has been profaned. God's, God's name has been profaned among the Gentiles because of unbelief. But now the Gentiles themselves will be sanctified by the name of God. And they're brought into the church. That's just amazing. And so he wants to bring this offering from the Gentiles to Jerusalem. And maybe, maybe Paul is really seeing something in the Old Testament as well. That in Isaiah chapter 45, in Isaiah 60, in Isaiah 61, in the book of Micah chapter 4 verse 13, it talks about the wealth of the nations flowing into Jerusalem in the last days. <laughs> well, that's literally happening because people have given, they've sacrificially given uh, for this offering that Paul has taken up. The wealth of the nations, the wealth of the Gentiles is coming to Jerusalem. How about that? Another thing we can get out of uh, what we've seen before is this concept of humility in Paul. He recognizes that God has given him gifts, but he knows that they came from God. He says, the grace God gave me. Because of the grace he gave me, I become an apostle to the Gentiles. So God gets all the credit here. And this is one of the, one of the things that St. Paul realized, and I think we need to pay heed to this as well in our own lives. We are all prone to pride, and, and we are prone to the same fault that it really was the downfall of Lucifer when he became the devil. He gave in to pride. He thought it was all about him. And sometimes when we have success in our Catholic lives, we've been able to overcome our vices. We've been able to attract others to the faith. And this happens a lot in terms of uh, high-profile clergymen, for example or uh, people who have a high pro public profile, they always have to fight against pride. And you might recall in the 1980s, all, all the various scandals involving televangelists, Protestant televangelists, evangelicals like Jim Baker and his PTL club, People That Love. You might remember, of course, his wife, Tammy Faye, who was well noted for her tears and her mascara running, uh, recently portrayed by Jessica Chastain in a movie, I think it was called The Tears of Tammy Faye. And one of the things that, that Jim Baker said after his downfall, and he had spent some time in prison, he said, we were so busy doing God's work that we forgot about God. We forgot about God. Very chilling words indeed. Very chilling words indeed. So all of that is kind of in the background as we look into the next section of Romans. The primacy of prayer. Paul asks for prayer. We need it. There is no success in anything that we do without it. Jesus says, without me, you can do oh, some good things. No, he says, without me, you can do nothing. 
You have to stay connected to the vine. It, it's not going to last supernaturally unless it's undergirded by prayer. And we have to be very careful to, to pay heed to those words also because there is a tendency in the, in the church today to apply business principles, things that work in the business world, to the church. And at some level, they might work. I once recalled um, seeing a book called Jesus as CEO. <laughs> um, maybe that's kind of working the other way, taking the principles of Jesus, trying to apply it to business. But, but we have to be very careful not to run the church as a business. It's not a business. It's a family. And that family is undergirded by prayer. And, and speaking of family, that brings us very, very nicely into chapter 16, because Paul's going to talk about a lot of different people in the church at Rome that he wants to greet and he eventually wants to meet. Remember, he doesn't he's never actually met these people in person. So let's look at Romans chapter 16. Now, the final chapter, the final countdown, as the band Europe would say, it's the final countdown. I don't usually sing on this show. I usually sing on the Cale Clark show, but I just did. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 16. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. Here's what Paul writes to the Romans. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord as befits the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a helper of many and myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I, but also all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponetus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are men of note among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenea and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, eminent in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, all the churches of Christ greet you. Okay, this is a very controversial passage for a lot of reasons. And so really what Paul's doing is he's giving a letter of commendation, if you will, a reference letter for this person, Phoebe. And who is she? We'll talk about that in just a second. But we've all had the experience of applying for jobs and we've had to get reference letters. Imagine getting a reference letter from the apostle Paul. Very, very nice. But he basically says that she is a deaconess of the church in Centuria. Now, does this mean she was a female ordained deacon? In the modern day church, in the 21st century church, there are a lot of people, including some clerics in the church, who would like to see the church ordain women deacons. Is this possible? It's not actually possible. But one of the reasons that they want to bring this up, they think that there's biblical ground for it here in Romans chapter 16. 
Well, I want to tell you what the underlying Greek word is here when it says that she is a deaconess. It's actually a Greek word which can also be translated as servant. And in fact, in some English translations of the Bible, it simply says that, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centuria. So this is the Greek word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. And yes, there are, in fact, ordained deacons in the church. Paul talks about this in other letters in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, for example. But that word diakonos has a broader range of meaning. It doesn't just mean ordained deacons. It also just means service, because obviously deacons are ordained to a ministry of servants service. And when they are deacons, they, they are to represent and, and, and try to practice and imitate the life of Christ, the servant. And so it's really, really important that we understand that that's exactly what, what it means here when it comes to Phoebe. Kind of shedding some light on this even more is that another, another thing he says about her in verse 2, he calls her a, in Greek, a prostatis to many people, including me. What does that mean? In other words, she has been a great help to many people, as it's translated sometimes in English. Well, the Greek word prostatus means to care for, to direct, to give aid to, for example. And some people sort of use this to say, well, that means she was a leader in the church. No, that, that's not the case. It means that she was a benefactor, a patron. In other words, she was a major donor. Charities like Relevant Radio rely on donors, and sometimes major donors contribute uh, out of what God has blessed them with. And that's exactly what Phoebe was doing here. The wider meaning of this term in Greek means patron or benefactor, this term prostatus. So I think that's what's going on here. She was probably quite wealthy. Maybe she came from family wealth. Uh, maybe she was a businesswoman like Lydia, who dealt in purple cloth, a very uh, lucrative trade that Paul also met uh, during his travels. But at any rate, she supported the church at Rome monetarily and, and was able to really make life easier for people like Paul as he's doing his missionary work. So she's on her way to Rome. Now, don't forget, there really wasn't a great system of hotels. You couldn't get <laughs> uh, hotel points on your credit card. There were some inns, commercial urns, but a lot of times you had to rely on the hospitality of others. So he's basically saying, Phoebe's coming your way. She's been super, super helpful and supportive to the church. Please look out for her. Please make her feel welcome. Give her a place to stay. She is one of us. She's on our side. So... That, that's the deal with Phoebe. She was not an ordained deacon, but she did really serve the church. In this case, with her financial blessings. And that's what that is really all about. We're going to explore much more about this in the next episode of Romans. We'll look at the end of Romans chapter 16. So that's your homework if you want it for next time. Just read the rest of chapter 16. And we will conclude our study oh, very, very soon. <laughs> but right now it's time for us to open up. The Faith Explained Q&A Mailbag. Let's go for it. All right, welcome back. And now it's time for our Q&A session. And we're going to pull out a question from the mailbag. I want to remind you that you can send me your question via email. The address is faith, F-A-I-T-H, at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app. It used to be called Twitter. And my handle there is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And today's question comes through email, and it's from Philip 
in Glennie, Michigan, who's listening on 103.1 FM in Rochester Hills, one of our great new FM stations here at Relevant Radio. And he says this, Hi, Kale. I'm wondering if a connection can be made between Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, and broadcasts made from Relevant Radio. Interesting question. Well, here's the passage in question, and it's really interesting that you're asking me this, Phil, because this was the first reading at yesterday's Mass. Here's what it says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And then he, he goes on to say this, uh, Philip in Michigan. He says, where it's written, as the rain and snow come down from heaven, can the broadcast radio waves that come down from communication satellites and radio towers be likened in an analogy to the effects of rain and snow? Where it's written, so is my word that goes out of my mouth, would it be applied not only to scripture, but that which is spoken during relevant radio broadcasts? Is it cut and dry? that only scripture would apply, or would truths based on scripture also be included? Where is the fuzzy line drawn? That's Philip in Glenny, Michigan, listening again on 103.1 FM, one of our 215 stations across the United States, with many millions more listening online on the relevantradio.com website and on our app. Well, I think, I think it's an interesting analogy, this idea that, yes, God's word is likened to the rain and the snow coming down from heaven, and it's also in the air in another way, uh, through broadcasts from our all of our towers and through the internet as well. And I just love this passage, by the way, uh, from Isaiah chapter 55. And, and right before it says this, there's another great quote from there that I always turn to. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That is absolutely true and that is absolutely the case. So I, I do think there, there is an analogy here. Absolutely. We want to get the word of God to as many people as possible and it will serve its purpose as that passage in Isaiah says. It absolutely uh, will not be done in vain. Any of the things that we're doing at Relevant Radio, trying to spread the good word of Christ through the media. And so, this uh, just wanted just to give you a little bit more background on, on this passage as well. It's kind of related a little bit to another verse of scripture in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. And that's where it says, God is not a man that he should lie. And we know, of course, that human beings being sinners are... are liable to sometimes not tell the truth. And people might say, well, hold on here. Isn't Christ a man? He's fully man. Yeah, but, but he is one divine person. He is God. He is the God-man. He obviously has a human nature, uh, which he picked up at the incarnation to go along uh, with his divine nature, which he had from all eternity as God the Son, God the Word. He cannot lie. This is very, very important for us to know. He's incorruptible. 
whatever he says is true, you can take it to the bank. As he says elsewhere, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So when God does speak, when God gives us his precious promises in Scripture, which we try to broadcast to the world through relevant radio, he's never going to retract his words. He's never going to take them back. His intentions are always the same. God always, as it says in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will never waver. There's no shadow of turning with him, as it says in one uh, popular worship song. He's never going to fall out of love with us like a spouse that might uh, forsake uh, his bride and and try to cast her aside. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So this is a great metaphor that I think is backed up by Isaiah 55. Verses 10 and 11. The rain comes down, the snow comes down, and they don't go back to heaven. It waters the earth and it brings forth luscious fruit and vegetation eventually. Sometimes that takes time. But it's a great analogy for how we try to water the earth, if you will, with the word of God. And so God is the one who's speaking. His words have absolute authority and it will come to pass. It will come to pass. It's always very, very intentional because God's ultimate word is a person. It's Jesus Christ. It's not sound waves. It is a person, Jesus Christ. And so we have to, we have to always remember that the true message of God is in the life and the person of Jesus. What he said and what he did. Born of a virgin, walked among us, laid down his life on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins and rose again from the dead. And he said, I will be with you until the very end of the age and beyond for all eternity. So his word has always come to pass. A great example of how his promises are always fulfilled way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 3, 15, when human beings first fell into sin, the original sin, what did God say? To the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is, this is Jesus we're talking about here. And that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago when Christ died on the cross, crushing the head of Satan. So it'll always be fulfilled. We can trust in it. And so, as St. Paul said in his letter to the Romans, which we've studied on the faith explained, the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. He's not going to take away his promises. Now we can remove ourselves from his promises because he's given us free will, but he, for his part, will never leave us nor forsake us. He will take care of us. We're more valuable than the sparrows, many sparrows, as Jesus says, the very hairs of our head are numbered. So in a world where People don't keep their promises, and there's a lot of uh, falsehoods, false news, and unbelief. We can trust in the one who always fulfills his campaign promises, if you will, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I think you are right. There is a great analogy between this passage of Scripture, Philip, and what we do every day here at Relevant Radio. So please pray for us and continue to support us. We appreciate it so very, very much. I'm Cale Clark for The Faith Explained. We'll catch you in the next episode. God bless you.